Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's down to the wire for the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, over which the House and Senate have managed to work out a compromise. This as Congress prepares to depart for the holidays. We get details from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. So they just need to vote or what's left yet to do so that they make their annual deadline of end of calendar year? Yeah, this is all about getting the final product across the finish line in both chambers. It could take some time because while they reached a compromise, it has bipartisan support. There's always some provision in here that has somebody upset or sometimes something that didn't make the cut that has folks upset. But a 3,100-page conference report filed last Wednesday that uh, people are still kind of pouring over um, to see all the details in. But, you know, the general contours are an $886 billion deal that reflects the top lines that both the bills had. And then there were some compromises along the way with some puts and takes between what the House and the Senate had on weapons programs and systems, but then dropping some of the controversial provisions from the House bill while keeping a few in there that had a bit of more bipartisan support and seem to be able to get through both chambers. Yes. And while I was away, the uh, Tuberville hold on the military officer appointments and promotions, that was mostly lifted. But there's still a few left still of the general officers. What's the prospect of that, given that there is a compromise bill on the NDAA? And what's interesting is Tuberville had held up those nominations around the DOD's abortion policy, allowing troops to to take time and and do things to obtain an abortion. Um, That language that would have blocked it in the House bill is not in the final version, but he had lifted his hold even before that was 100 percent clear. Um, Tuberville has said he's made his point. He got a discussion about this. He released many. Many of the nominees, but still some of the top ones remain to be processed. What we saw even during his holds was that if they got the vote scheduled, they could get through them somewhat quickly. So we'll see if between now and when the Senate heads to the exits, if they'll try to schedule some of those. They'd like to get more of those positions filled, obviously, given the length of time, the 10 months or so that these holds were in place. And so there is this compromise bill needs to be voted. And if they do that this week, then there's also the continuing resolution, the second one in place until sometime in, I believe, the middle of January or so. That means they are likely to be able to go on break. Any big unfinished business between now and then? Yeah, we're in an unusual position. Most Decembers, we're waiting for a big spending package that will fund the government into the next calendar year and um, take care of that sort of business. They already preempted that by coming to the agreement to push government spending to January 19th for some agencies and then February 2nd for others. Uh, There is still a couple of spending items out there, though, that we'll see how that will affect the departure. The first is the aid package for Ukraine, Israel, the Indo-Pacific, and for border funding, as well as, as some Republicans would like to see, or many Republicans, border restrictions and changing policies there. There was that test vote last week in the Senate. They couldn't get enough to move on to the bill to allow that debate to happen. And then negotiators in the Senate got back in the room and said they'd try to work again on the border language. It seems to me at this vantage point, it would be hard to get that done by the end of the year. Michael McCall, who's the House Foreign Relations Chair, very interested in this subject and who wants to to see it move forward, even said last week that he doesn't see how it can get done during this calendar year. So it may may come to pass that that doesn't get done. They're also working for a top-line spending deal that doesn't have to be passed, but in order for the appropriators to meet those deadlines I just mentioned, they have to have some sort of number to work to. And that's one of the things that I think we'll see action on before they leave, at least some talks continuing to go on behind closed doors. 
We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. These talks then could maybe continue informally or unofficially during their Christmas season break because there's just so much to be done, it sounds like. Yeah, there's a lot to be done, and writing appropriations bills isn't, you know, you just don't snap your fingers and get them. It will take time to know what your target is and then figure out how to allocate money between the programs and agencies. So uh, there was a positive sign, potentially, last week when the Speaker, Mike Johnson, said that the debt limit deal was the law of the land when it came to total spending. Now, there's a lot that that still leaves question marks around. You know, do you take money from other places and use that to offset and get more spending overall? But um, that that might help talks along when the hundred billion dollar or so gap between the House and the Senate has been a key reason nothing's moved for for much of the year on this. Any other authorizations um, like the FAA? What's going on there? Yeah, two big ones. The FAA expires at the end of the year. That was part of the original CR that prevented the September 30th, October 1 shutdown. There's a bill coming through the House that would extend that into March. I probably will see action in both chambers to ensure that doesn't shut down. Uh, the longer-term bill in the Senate has been stalled over a pilot training issue. It would be hard to see that get through committee, through the floor, and get everything done by the end of the year. There's also the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Section 702. That's about monitoring persons outside the U.S. with electronic communications. That would be extended in the Defense Authorization bill to give time for the House and Senate to work on a longer term measure there. So um, we might even see votes in the House this week on some longer term proposals, but that at least kicks it into next year so that they don't leave for the holidays with that unfinished. And getting back to the Ukraine funding issue tied to border security, there was the infamous letter, you know, from last week stating how much, this is from the Office of Management and Budget, stating how much is left. So I guess maybe the Republicans that were blocking this feel that since there are a couple of months or so of spending still to go, there's money still to go through in Ukraine, they feel like they're in the driver's seat. It doesn't have to be appropriated right now this moment. Right. They think they have a little bit of time. There are these January and February deadlines that maybe if they came to a deal, they could use that. Um, But they want to use the leverage they have to get something done on the border here. There's a real frustration about what's happening and policy decisions they don't like. So they're they're using, you know, you use vehicles and you use debates to try to achieve something. So um, and House Republicans also want this border language. Um, they control one of the chambers. They have allies in the Senate who have real leverage when it comes to this debate. So we'll see if there can be an agreement reached on that either now or sometime in the next calendar year. And what about all of these non-appropriations, non-authorizations gambits that have emerged? There's a impeachment idea for Joe Biden, the president. There's the Hunter Biden. There's new things popping up on that front all the time. And then there's the college presidents, you know, Elise Stefanik. These are, I guess, strictly Republican things, or do the Democrats have their other gambits that are not directly tied to legislation for appropriations? I mean, on the impeachment front, they are aiming for a vote this week to set up an impeachment inquiry formally. Former Speaker McCarthy had set one up more informally, but this will be enshrined in a resolution and put some some structure around it. Um, there's, as you mentioned, Hunter Biden supposed to or has been subpoenaed to testify behind closed doors this week. Um, if he doesn't show up because he wants to do it in public, not in private, uh, then House Republicans have said they might 
hold him in contempt of Congress. Um, then there's all the censuring we've seen going on. Last week, it was Jamal Bowman being censured for pulling the fire alarm and pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. And then, of course, we had a member expelled not too long ago, um, George Santos, who was thrown out. That was a more bipartisan thing. But we are seeing a lot of this um, kind of tit-for-tat investigation, censuring, impeachment. So it's kind of a weird time. And when you talk about the college professors and resolutions about anti-Semitism that have kind of split the parties or, or wrinkled things, it's it, there's a lot of issues here that aren't strictly bills, but are things that Congress does get involved in and um, certainly have generated a lot of debate and interest. Well, if it gets too bad, we can all go bake gingerbread. Indeed. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.